0: Welcome to the Unsophisticated Palate, a podcast about all things wine, beer, and spirits. Join us each week as we drink and delve into different alcohol-related topics. I'm Mark, and I'm Jeff. Cheers! Cheers. All right,
1: and we're drinking um, a Grenache, I believe. Is that correct? You are. You're drinking a 2016 La Vie d'Ange Grenache, 100% Grenache from Dos Rios Vineyards here in Gilroy, California.
0: Excellent, and that actually answered kind of one of my questions. La vie de danson. De danson. De, Delson. Delson. Des- <laughs> okay, yeah, i to say I got you know I want to get it
1: right. Okay, so what I tell people a lot is if you don't want to handle that big D word, just call us La Vie. The life. Okay. The life. Le, yeah, La Vie dans son means the dancing life or the life dancing. Oh, okay. Nice. It's um it originally came from a song title mm-hmm. that was written back in 1985. The song talks about not putting off your dreams. Live them today. And when I first started this company, I was still working in the corporate world, but I was dreaming about wine. Mm-hmm. And I had to start an LLC, and I thought, well, that's going to be a kind of a cool name for it. No thought to the fact it was probably copywritten or trademarked. And, <laughs> Oops. And whatever. I was just going to use it for the LLC. And uh, then when I fell into having a winery, it just seemed to make a nice name for the label. Yeah. And I I found out after that doing some research looking at the name that it also kind of harks back to an old saying in France about uh living the good life. La vie oh, okay. dans sonne. It's a way to say um the life dancing, but they mean the the life with wine and food and friends and just the good life. Mhm. So it makes a pretty good label.
0: I like names with with something behind them and, and and a lot of meaning like that and and that's awesome.
1: So the dirty little secret behind it though is that it's actually uh bad French. Oh, is I, it? I have a couple of wine club members who are, are native French speakers. And, and I asked them because I didn't want it to say something totally stupid. Yep. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, okay, I get what you're saying. We would never say it that way. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, actually the verb tense is wrong. Uh, and I'm like, okay. And he told me what it should be. And I said, but that doesn't sound as good. Yeah. You know, we're English speaking. And so we're going to call it La because it rolls better and it fits better. Yeah. So anybody out there that speaks true French, yeah, I, I know it's wrong.
0: Yeah, and we're <laughs> Americans, so we just do what we yeah. want to do anyway. Exactly.
1: And, but, but it,
0: it does. It's, it needs to roll off the tongue. Mm-hmm. So Okay, I like it. I like it. And we're here in Gilroy, California, out on the edge of uh, Santa Clara County, if I'm correct, right?
1: Well, we're on the north edge of Gilroy in unincorporated Santa Clara County. We're actually in what we call South Valley. But the county extends another 15 or 20 miles south of us. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're not really, Santa Clara County is a huge county, all the way up from like Palo Alto, Menlo Park area, down to San Benito. Uh, and we're about 10 or 15 miles north of San Benito. So okay. we're not in the middle, but we're not on the
0: edge. Are you the head winemaker? Or are you the <laughs> owner? I mean, well, I think you're the owner. What, what, what are your What's your title role? How do you consider yourself?
1: Okay. So on my business cards, it says intoxicologist.
0: I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says so on your shirt as well. That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does say on the
1: <laughs> shirt. Um, but what I do is pretty much everything. So this is a one man and one dog operation. So, uh-huh. yes, I'm the winemaker, I'm the owner, I'm the gardener, I'm the janitor, I'm the dog poop picker upper, <laughs> pretty much everything.
0: Does do it all. Okay. Yeah. And and you get your your would would they be patrons clients I know guests uh, yes. people who come in your guests uh, you well you shouldn't get them intoxicated and send them off driving <laughs> no, they have no, a designated do driver uh, but you you bring them in and you wine taste you run the wine tasting room as well
1: I do I do have some uh, people who help me I have a very old friend named Richard who helped me we built all these buildings we did the design work on it uh, he helps me with wine work there are it's just. Winemaking, it's nothing's hard. Everything is actually pretty easy. It's all pretty small stuff, but there's a lot of it. Yes. And having four hands a lot of times really makes it easier. So Mm -hmm. Richard helps me a couple days a week. and he's. It started years ago when I helped him flip a house, and then he was going to help me build a building to make (laughs) up for that, and now he's stuck. Yep. (laughs) Um, His wife, Leanne, helps me sometimes in the tasting room, Mm -hmm. and we're looking to hire a couple people. We've grown to the point I really cannot do it by myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people think that the winemaking is 100% of what we do, but honestly it's maybe 20%. Mm -hmm. There's finances, there's marketing, there's, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, irons in the fire here.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's running a business, and, and it's it's exactly. a lot. There, there's the fun romantic side, I think, that everybody envisions, and then there's the business side, which is a lot more.
1: <laughs> right. When I got into this, I had worked at a winery for a while, and I've worked in the corporate world doing business planning, and I, I went to UC Davis, and I have a degree in winemaking. I thought I'd covered all the bases. I thought I knew exactly what to expect. Mm-hmm. The one thing I, I didn't, Understand is how hard it is in this country or this state to start your own business. Mm. The amount of paperwork, the amount of time, the amount of reporting, um, just the amount of time I spent in QuickBooks mm-hmm. didn't occur to me. And um, I, I would caution anybody who wants to do this. It's a great life. It really is. I can't get down on it, but it's the hardest job you'll ever do.
0: Nice. Well, I guess maybe not nice. It depends, you know. Um, yeah that's good uh so we're talking today about different or different kinds of wineries or types of wineries because there's uh as i've learned i mean i just kind of considered a winery a winery but but there's a lot more to it than that (laughs) so maybe let's talk a little bit about um start with kind of how maybe you got into wine making uh and or wineries and then uh Kind of what you would consider what you have here, and then maybe we can kind of branch out on some of the other kind of types from there. How's that
1: sound? Sure. Okay. Okay. That's actually, that's a couple hours worth of question, but that's fine. Uh (laughs) So how I got into winemaking. I guess there's two ways to get into winemaking, or two ways to start a winery. You can start with $10 million and throw money at it, which, by the way, is definitely the right way to do it. (laughs) Or you can start with no money like we did, and uh, it's all building sweat equity, and it's working your butt off to get it to work. Both have their advantages. I'm happy with the way we did it. I got into winemaking uh, back in 2009. I had a job at a corporation, well, uh, Orchard Supply, Osh. Okay, right. Yeah. So this is you know you're from local California. hardware store, yeah. right? 35 year old history. They were uh, they'd grown up. They were owned by Sears. Uh, we're going to get in the weeds, so we'll back off from that. Anyway, <laughs> they hired a bunch of people, me included, to come in and help modernize the company. We were there for about a year and did some good work modernizing it, but at the end of the year, I needed a break, and I asked for a a vacation, and he said, take two weeks, and I said, two months, and he said, then your job won't be here when you're back, and I said, okay, and I resigned, Hmm. so I took a year off. A one-year sabbatical. Okay, nice. Uh, uh, The first thing I did after I resigned was realize I didn't own a telephone or a computer or anything else. (laughs) It's how it is in the corporate world. It's all company stuff. Yep. So I went to Best Buy, got all that, went to a Starbucks, and I made a list of the things I wanted to do in Mm -hmm. a year. The goal being I'm not going to even think about a job. I had money. I was Okay just going to do all the things I haven't done in the last 20 years of working in the corporate world.
0: Kind of like, almost like at the end of college, you take that gap year. So this is your like corporate gap year.
1: <laughs> That's a beautiful way to do it. I've been calling it, even back then, I called it uh, the premature bucket list. Oh, there you go. But a gap year is exactly what it was. It okay. wasn't quite a sabbatical. It's just, I'm going to take a year. Yeah. I was going to travel. I was going to learn to play guitar, speak Spanish. I was going to study. I had all these ideas. How'd um, all that go? I'm, I'm getting there.
0: Okay. Okay. I still can't play guitar.
1: My Spanish is atrocious. I haven't traveled anywhere in the last five years, Okay, but but they're still on the list. Good. But one of the things, oddly enough, was learn to play golf. So I did do that. I, I started golf lessons and, uh, the very first week of this gap year, I was on my way home from a golf lesson and I stopped at a wine bar and, um, Asked the young lady there uh, what she would recommend, and she recommended this wine that was on their little back bar. And I said, oh, I've, I've heard of them. And she said, it's a, a brand new winery, the local area, and you should try them. I'm like, okay, I want a glass. You know, I thought I knew a lot about wine because I've been drinking wine for two decades or so, and I, I'm, I love studying things, and we had been spending a lot of time in wineries mm-hmm. learning about wine, I thought. Mm-hmm. So I proceeded to tell her exactly what I thought of the wine, which, by the way, I maintain I was right. No okay. doubt about it. But the guy sitting next to me turned out to be the winemaker. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh-oh. Uh, now I have a, another perspective. Being a winemaker, I, I, I cringed at some of the things I said. But he and I talked about it. And, and rather than getting all upset about some of the things I said, he said, you know, you should come see the winery. I just started it. Come on in. He he was kind of enamored of the whole gap year idea. Mm-hmm. So I went down the next day and spent some time with him. And I ended up working for him for a full year, my entire gap year. I oh, worked wow. without pay at a winery. I learned a little bit about making wine and a lot about running a winery. Okay. Well, at the end of the year, um, I <laughs> 401k, health insurance. You know, I needed money, so yeah, yeah. I, I took a job offer and I went back into the corporate world. I had another good job. I was making video games for Electronic Arts, which is not a bad job if you can get it. Yep. But I also knew I wanted to be in wine. So I uh, spent that year studying wine. I enrolled at UC Davis. So you went and enrolled in
0: UC Davis, but you still at this point don't have a job or, or an income or anything. So, I mean, did you work your way through or...
1: No, I did actually. Uh, so 2009 was the gap year. At the end of, of uh, 2009... I realized I need to go back to work, and uh, I took a job offer at Electronic Arts. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Right. They've been asking me for years to come work for them, and I really was tired of the corporate world and didn't want to. But because I knew I needed money to make this transition, I decided I I wanted to work in wine, and so I wanted to spend. I told them five years. Mm -hmm. Five years, I'm out of here, and so I went to work for them. And during that five years, I went to Davis. Worked on a, with their certificate program, which allows you to work uh, mostly remote. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Yeah, once a month I'd go up to Davis and take classes, but most of the time it was all remote. And um, I also worked at the winery part-time, and then I did the corporate job full-time. And it worked really great. I was able to avoid commuting. The commuting here is horrendous. Yes. Uh, it was. By the time I was ready to quit, it was four hours a day in the car. So the way I avoided that is I went into the Pete's Coffee in San Bruno and studied homework for three hours every day.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Got home
1: a half an hour later than if I drove, but I didn't have to sit in traffic for three and a half hours. And you got your homework done. (laughs) And I got a degree. Nice. Which was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So So all you commuters, there's some wise advice.
1: (laughs) But then four years and 11 months after I started, I had graduated from Davis. Uh, This property became available. I don't own the property; I lease the property. But the family had bought it, didn't want to make wine, and they asked if I'd be interested in it. And my job had changed. The Mm -hmm. uh, I was given the opportunity of following my boss to his new company as he left, or restructuring within the present company, or taking a little bit of money and leaving. Mm -hmm. And it was the perfect storm: a little bit of money, property is available. Got a degree in winemaking. When you told them you give them five years, you're pretty much there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I never planned to own a winery. This was an accident. It was the perfect storm that happened. My thought was that I would be uh, maybe studying the WSET, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust Program, or maybe the Sommelier Program, and I would be on a cruise ship holding up a glass of Burgundy while we talked about (laughs) the virtues of this wine and ate this five-course dinner, Mm -hmm. and I got paid. Yep. Instead, I decided that if I was ever going to try to run a winery, this was the only opportunity I'd ever get. And I yeah. didn't want to be 10 years later going, what might have happened? Mm-hmm. So I basically put all the chips to the table. Uh, retirement, 401k, every penny I had into oh, wow. building this winery, starting this job, and trying to make it work.
0: That's that's rolling dice and living the dream. So now here we are <laughs> at least a few years later, I think, at this point. Coming up on five. Coming up on five. So
1: doubts, regrets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, old Frank Sinatra songs going through my head. Doubts, I've had a few. (laughs) Um, I would say I traded a ton of stress for a lot of anxiety. Okay, I don't have any stress anymore, but I worry a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, my office is a vineyard. On bad days, (laughs) I take the dog for a walk. I haven't had a conference call in five years. I don't uh, sit in a cubicle. Nobody reviews me. I love this job.
0: I say so you'd say you made a good choice, you made the I right did. choice.
1: Now I'm a little tired of top ramen. You know, <laughs> when we uh, when we sat down at a friend's kitchen table and and I outlined what I was thinking about doing, he said you, you need to make a business plan. And my background at electronic arts was in financial planning and analysis. Okay. So I went in with my eyes wide open and I, I brought him a business plan. I said, I have four different possibilities mm-hmm. of ways we can do this none of which work <laughs> and I said at best we could make it to year three and I'm going to be broke mm-hmm. and his response and I still blame him for this is you always are too conservative, you're always better than you think, you can do this, things will happen, it'll work. Mm-hmm. Year three we were broke. Well, but, but you made it past. But we're, <laughs> we're tiptoeing past, right. Awesome. It's uh, there's been a lot of changes. The original business plan, you know, doesn't look anything like what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm pretty excited. We've got things going in a in a sort of a downturn market for wine. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've noticed, but the wine market's not all that good right now.
0: I have been hearing that a lot. I mean, I'm obviously not directly in there, but having talked to many different winemakers mm-hmm. and wineries and everything else, I've definitely been hearing that. And I've also been hearing there's a lot of Grapes left unharvested. There's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a...
1: I think our biggest problem down here is we are an up-and-coming wine region, and I think we're going to be a really important wine region for California fairly soon. Again, we were 100 years ago. But right now, uh, we've doubled the number of our wineries, but I don't think our guest count has gone up. So I think that we have twice as many wineries sharing the same pool, the mm-hmm. same pie, mm-hmm. which... Is okay. Good wineries will get a bigger share. And if we just, if we work to be good, we should be okay. But what's really going to help everybody down here is when people in San Jose and Palo Alto and up in Silicon Valley realize that we're their closest wine area. Yeah. We're 30 minutes away. There's no bridges and no tolls and we're friendly. Yeah. And that's going to happen. Yeah. It's just going to take some time.
0: Yeah. And I'm seeing it happen. I mean, I had no idea how much wine and good wine was actually here and made here uh, until even very recently. And this was someplace that, you know, I grew up for most of my life. I now live up in the Portland, Oregon area, but, you know, I come back often and, and we'd go up to Napa, you go up to Sonoma, you go down to uh, Paso de Robles, uh, you you know, you go anywhere. But your own backyard where there's some amazing, and, and here, and I also got to give a plug up like in the Santa Cruz mountains, there's some amazing wineries going on up there too. And it's like, like you said, I mean, less than 30 minutes, no bridges, no tolls, and, and you've got quality wine. So if you're here for vacation, if you're here visiting, um, you know, if you live here, especially, anywhere in, in the Silicon Valley area, I'd say, you know, I'm throwing this out plug out there, uh, unpaid, <laughs> whatever, it's I all was good. I just but
1: wondering if we're going to get any money from that. <laughs>
0: I doubt it. Okay. <laughs> but, hey, um you know, it's it's a great area to come visit, and 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 actually, I recommend this anywhere you go because I found this as I've traveled, I found it in a lot of places. Look for the local wines, the local wineries, and and try those because I actually was in. Uh, I've talked about this before in Arizona, and I found a a, a local wine and I'm like, what the heck, you know, it's it, it, you know, you're not gonna get any good wine, but hey, go local. It was actually a really good wine, um, and they had grown it. Actually, they have higher elevation right. and, and better weather. You know, obviously they're not growing it down in the desert. Um, but so again, it's it's by knowing those things and experimenting, you get a lot of uh, experience you wouldn't otherwise. If you just go with, hey, I know that name, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And it also helps when you do that. You you find one in a new wine region, find one place that interests you. You know, use the internet, use Yelp, use Google, whatever. And find one place that seems interesting, even if you don't think it's going to have great whys, go there and talk to them. And then let them tell you where to go. Yeah. Because they'll know what you're looking for. They'll know the inside scoop. The One of the things I love about this industry is everybody knows everybody else. Mm-hmm. We're all still pretty friendly. There's not There's competition, but it's friendly competition. And we all help each other out. Yeah, so you go to one winery, make a good bond there, and they will plan the rest of your day for you.
0: Yeah, they will. I mean, if you and I found that if you don't like necessarily what you're tasting there, and they'll kind of know what you like, and they'll point you exactly. that direction. If you do like what you're tasting there, they'll point you to similar places. So it's 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 a win win win. I don't know However you want to do that. <laughs> a lot of wins in there. It's a great scenario.
1: And and never be afraid to say you don't like the wines. I know that people are intimidated coming to a tasting room. But as the winemaker, I'll tell you, if you try every one of my wines and, and you just say they're not for me, I don't like them. All I'm going to ask is, well, okay, tell me what you like and let me help you find a winery that will work for you. Yeah. I, I, earlier, before we were talking a little bit about ego, and I think there is a lot of ego in this. And I know I feel that my ego is tied up in this a bit, but not so much that I'm really all that upset about my wines. Yeah. Like them, don't like them. It's Okay. Yes. But let's find. There's over 140,000 different wines made in this country every single year. Different labels. If you don't like my wine, that's okay. There's mm-hmm. going to be another one, and yeah. it's probably just down the road.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think too, like you were saying, uh, what I found in, and and uh, is is you don't even need to know. And this is again, like you said, it's intimidating going into a wine tasting room. You don't even need to know all the terms. You don't need to be able to like. <laughs> Well, I like a fruit forward, you know, whatever, you know, you can just kind of say, describe what you do or don't like in as common a terms as you can, you know, and, and here's some things that I've kind of liked or, or whatever. And, and oftentimes someone who knows what they're doing can interpret that and get you pretty close, I think at least point you in the right direction
1: <laughs> yeah it's uh I go I don't do a lot of wine tasting anymore unfortunately so I'm so busy but when I do it's funny because I'll go with other wine makers and I'm sure people assume that we're talking about oh it has nuances of peach and honeysuckle and a little firm backbone of this honestly if you look at my notes um I use smiley faces oh okay you know a smiley face means I like it I'd love some more a little line face means it was okay but I'm good and a frowny face means I didn't like
0: that-hmm
1: That's how I rate wines. Yeah. And that's every winemaker I know does it. This not necessarily smiley faces. Some use thumbs up and thumbs down, but it's about enjoying the wine. Yeah, you Don't get tied up in the details. Yeah,
0: You like well, it, you don't like it. It's well, yeah, easy. and because what I taste isn't necessarily going to be what you taste. And I think that's the problem is a lot of times, yep. you, like you said, you're going to say, I get blueberry and I don't and I think I must be wrong and I must be stupid or I must be whatever. And it's not. It's because everybody's palate's different and it's going to taste something different. You're going to get out of it what you experience based on your history and experience and and. and Everything else involved there, so I, I you can't be intimidated, or, or no. don't let anyone else intimidate you. Because if they do, actually, this is what here, here's a fun fact that I've learned along the way. If anybody starts intimidating me, or or getting I don't know, kind of puffing up or whatever, or kind of talking down to me a little bit, those are the people I have found in my experience know the least, <laughs> and or think they know the most, and and really don't. And anybody who really knows. They're gonna they're gonna get it. They're gonna talk with you. They're gonna have a conversation with you. And whether they agree with you or not, it, they're they're gonna be cool with it.
1: <laughs> exactly. I I honestly I know we we are way off the question, but that's yeah. Fun.
0: <laughs> I was about to say we're we're kind of off topic too. So we will get back to um, the type of winery here. But you, you let you finish that comment there.
1: Okay. Well, since you led into it, then I will. But it is way off topic. Uh, tasting notes. Yes. I hate tasting notes. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. They're done. If you're lucky, the winemaker did it. And he did it at the time he bottled it, and wine changes drastically in bottle. So what he tasted, which may not have been even what you would taste, at the time he bottled it, now that you're drinking the wine a year later, has no bearing on what's actually there. So when it says lemon zest, that may not even be in the wine anymore. And then you read that, that tasting note and you go, I don't taste lemon zest. Oh, I must be bad at this. No, it's just that it's a bad tasting note. And everybody tastes things different. And one of the examples I'd like to use, I used it earlier today, I saw a wine label the back of which said at one point something about red licorice. Okay, well, first of all, there's no such thing. Licorice is black. That's just the way it is. The two most famous red licorices are red vines and Twizzlers. Yes. And if you put red licorice on the label, which one are you talking about?
0: Because they are different. <laughs>
1: one's cherry and one's strawberry. And I don't care what your palate's like, there's a difference. Yeah. It just, tasting notes, unless they're updated like every 90 days, are pretty much not all that useful. They they give you an idea, but they're intimidating. And all they do is make people either feel like they don't understand it or they don't taste what's there or they're a bad taster. And that's not true, ever. Mm -hmm. Nobody's a bad taster.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and that's good, and that's perfect, and I actually didn't even realize, I just kind of learned something there, that that I assumed that the tasting notes came, like, when they're getting ready to make the labels, they crack open a bottle, and they they taste a little, and so it's semi-relevant, although I guess, even on what you're saying, even if they did that, though, by the time the labels are printed and put on the bottle, so most often it's done at the time it's being bottled, well, no, but... Yeah, I guess that's when you'd make the labels and everything else, right? So, yes, yeah, so in, in my head, somehow or another, I had assumed it, it was more tied to something more recent. But, he, again, even if it was, that could be six months to a year. Right. Or, or again, depending on how long.
1: And some of them could be more recent. You can do it at the time you bottle. You may label later. It's usually easier to label at bottling. So And you have to do that because you need to have a certificate of label approval. and So you need to write the label 60 days before you do the bottling so it could be a year and a half prior to when the wine's released if it's on the back of the label mm-hmm. if it's a tasting note that's in a book on the countertop of the tasting room that could be more recent but i mean i but have even the, then i have a book you can go look at it do i update those tasting notes no
0: yeah i say but even then it was probably done once it's like, the same two years
1: ago a year ago yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And, and and it's going to change and even if it was done yesterday as we pointed out you know, your your palate may be entirely different. So just because you don't taste what they taste, like you said, doesn't mean you're wrong. Right.
1: Yeah. Nobody's ever wrong. Yeah. Okay. You like it or you don't like it. Those are the only things that matter. And if you're in a winery with good staff and a good winemaker or good people you're talking to, pour out the wine if you don't like it and you won't hurt their feelings at all.
0: Yeah. And, and I've not hesitated to do that. And I've yet to ever have anybody give good. me a hard time about it. And so... Okay, so a long route to get to the what topic. Was the question? <laughs> uh, well, to get to the overall topic, so we'll kind of dive into this a little bit. Um, we're here on site at the winery. Uh, wind's blowing a little bit, and, and so there may be some background noise, but that's all part of the ambiance, as we know. So, so what would you kind of call the, the type of winery you have? So let's, let's kind of work through the different types of wineries and, and how you might kind of define them.
1: Okay. I, there's no official terms for them, I don't think. We, we call ourselves a boutique winery. Um, maybe cause I like the word, I'm not sure, but in my head, I think there are different levels of wineries and I think starting at like the smallest, you have a hobby winery. Mm-hmm. It's fully licensed. They can sell wine. They make wine. They have their TTB approval, their tobacco and tariff bureau, I think is what it stands for approval. And they're making wine probably in their garage. Usually it's a husband and wife. They both have day jobs. They're doing it because they like making wine. And they're thinking, I'm going to do this when I retire, so I'm going to start now. Mm-hmm. I don't think many of them actually do it that way, but maybe it ends up that way. Yeah. Well, and I would say even extend
0: that slightly to they might have a small tasting room or, right. or again, even on their property and they're open a day a month or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. It, again, like it, it may be a legitimate winery. But for them, it's, it's more of a hobby and or secondary thing as opposed to this is my life.
1: Exactly. And yeah. you hit upon a couple other things. I think size is relevant. They maybe do up to about 500 cases a year. They sell through their tasting room or you know in a pop-up shelter in their driveway, whatever. Uh, they don't distribute. They're in no restaurants. Um it's not their source of income, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, oh, a wonderful way to do it. There's but some
0: great wines. Exactly. <laughs> I've had some amazing wines that way. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Their their ability to concentrate on the wine when they do that little is awesome. So that's probably hobby winery, and it can and you can change levels as you go. I think the next is probably me at boutique. Mm-hmm. Call it maybe 750 cases up to maybe 1,500 or 2,000. And that's still probably one or two people, but now at least one of them, this is their full-time job, and this is how they're making their living. And they, they're they starting to look at having to have a wine club, and you're starting to have to distribute, at least to the local restaurants, just to get your name out there. And it's now serious. And instead of being open one weekend a month, you're now open at least every weekend a month. And yeah. You're starting you to think some about,
0: consistency, so people know, right. I want to go, I can go, not what... You know what time of month is it? Yeah, yeah you never yeah. want to
1: disappoint a guest. Yeah, you gotta always be. If you're open, you're open. You're not suddenly closed this day because it's somebody's birthday. Yeah, uh, it's a business now. The next and that's where we are. We're at boutique and we're tending towards I think small winery, at least in attitude, if maybe not production. We're yeah. by the way we're about twelve hundred cases to fifteen hundred cases right mm-hmm.
0: now. Okay, and I've also seen that referred to as, as potentially, although I don't think it's a term that's caught on a lot. But in, in looking a little bit to to, to Prepare for this a little bit. I, I saw a micro winery oh, out yeah. there, so it's kind of like a micro brewery, but it, it's very different. Uh, I think in in many ways, but but that I think could also kind of fall under that. So if you've heard the term, I think it would probably fall within there. But it, I I, I like the terms you're using better, and that, I think that's actually now I think about it when I when I hear boutique in in, a, in associated with wineries, it's it's very much what you're describing here. Yeah,
1: a lot of hands on. But is, we're still, everything's done hands-on. We bottle by hand. We do everything by hand. It's very much the one. You're going to meet the winemaker when you visit the winery. He yep. may not be the only one there, but he'll be around. Um, you also hear garagiste a lot, or a garage winery. Mm-hmm. I think that has a different connotation. To me, that's that's wild professor, crazy, fun, uh, sort of uh, it's new age winemaking.
0: hobby <laughs> you know, because it's still kind of a hobby, but you're not actually... License and selling it, you think? Or?
1: Well, maybe, because uh, it started with making wine in the garage. Yeah. But I think that it's become, especially in France now, and uh, maybe in... Oh, the weird place like Arizona where, where people are doing experimental winemaking and things. It maybe doesn't relate as much to size, but to technique and theory. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more fun and adventurous. Okay. Without, I guess without having to worry about making a living doing it, nobody's making a living doing it that way. But they're they're experimenting, they're having fun, and they're not worried about it as a business. They're worried more about the quality and the, and the excitement of making wine. Yeah. And that's very cool, but I don't think it fits into our size scale. I think it's more hobby to boutique. And above boutique is maybe like small. So that's why micro worked pretty good for hobby. Mm-hmm. Small winery, now it's a business. You're starting to hire people. You've got a couple tasting room associates. You probably have a vineyard guy. Uh, now it's really a business because you got HR and you got a payroll. and <laughs> yep. ugh, That beats all the fun out of it. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, you can take a day off every now and then, which would be kind of cool. Yes. I think small wineries run up to about maybe from 2,000 cases to maybe 3,500. Okay. Then you have this weird dead zone from 3,500 to say 10,000 cases. And a lot of wineries find themselves in this place. And this is a place where you make too much wine to sell through your tasting room. So you have to go to distribution. But distribution, you give away a lot of your profit margin to the distributor company. Mm -hmm. So between 3,500 and 10,000, you work twice as hard to make twice as much wine, but you make the same amount of money. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it's a horrible place to be. I, I know a few wineries locally here who are in that place, and they are fighting to get to the point where they make enough wine that they can make up in volume what they're losing in margin. Yes. And I don't ever want to get there. Yeah, that's Honestly, kind of a rough
0: little dead zone there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's
1: where you see a lot of wineries go out of business. They They get to the point where they have so much wine, they can't actually sell it. And it's just, well, wine ages well, but it does eventually go bad. It's kind of yeah. like a... It's kind of like a car. It's got a date on it, and you don't want to buy a three year old car brand new. Yeah. So when the wine's five years old, when you're selling your twenty thirteens in your tasting room, people look at you funny. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Nothing
1: wrong with it, yeah. but they know you're behind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and plus you're sitting on a, a ton of inventory, which you put money into, right? And and it's just sitting there dead, right? And and yeah, yeah.
1: The number one expense holding cost of inventory.
0: Oh, People oh yeah, don't you don't think about store that. it too, right?
1: So my my average holding cost, and we're small, but I have two to three vintages depending on reds and whites in bottle, it's $2 per case per month, so $24 per case per year. Wow, okay. So if you have if you're three vintages behind, your added cost of goods, oh, this is probably getting really boring, <laughs> adds another $50 to $75. Yeah. And that comes right out of your profit. Yeah, you don't think about it because you're not writing the check for it, but you're writing the check for your lights and your rent and your cooling and everything else.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, and it's it is. I don't know. Maybe we're getting a little weedy, but I, it's still <laughs> interesting. I, I mean, I, th- I think these are fun, and and it's good to know as you kind of walk in, especially some of these smaller ones, the boutique ones, or if you even get into a small size one, to kind of know where they are and and kind of what's potentially kind of going on. I think that that helps give insight into into a lot of things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So you got the small, and then so you get over that 10,000, and then you're just...
1: Well, you get into commercial, and then things start to change. And the smaller ones in the in the, the micro, the garagis, the the boutique, uh, wine quality is important. Because you're not making a lot, and you're not meeting a lot of people, and you need really good wine, and you care about it. Because you're, you're literally elbows deep in the wine all the time. Mm-hmm. When you start getting up to around 10,000 cases, now you've got a winemaker, or at least an assistant winemaker, and you're not into it as much. And I won't say wine quality suffers... But the contact time with the wine does and I'm a firm believer that it takes your nose your hands your your face in the wine to actually make good wine to make really good wine mm-hmm. When you get bigger, you start looking at things like oh we need to have music and I really we can maybe we should do weddings and well you know we need to do this um, this charity event and suddenly it's more about running the business than it is about making the wine yeah it's a it's a fact of nature. You yeah. you get out of touch with the wines as the owner. Mhm. A lot of wineries do great wine that way cuz they have a really good winemaker and they pay them a lot of money and that's great. But a lot of wineries don't.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think again that gets into that transition stage, right? Where you're as you continue to grow, um, if you grow and you are the winemaker and everything else, then you get like you said further and further away from the wine until maybe eventually hopefully you hit a point where you can either bring in a full-time winemaker or Pawn off all the things you don't want to do and then get right back elbows deep in the wine. So it's all those growing pains, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: When you get up to the 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 cases, like some of the bigger Napa wineries, well, at that point, your wine quality is awesome because even if you, as the owner, aren't elbows deep in the wine, you've hired somebody who's really good because you can afford to pay him 150K a year to do nothing but make your wine. Yeah. So then the quality gets really good again. Mm hmm. but it's a a long process and those wineries have been around for 30 or 40 years. And I keep getting told when I'm worried about, wow, we don't have enough customers and you know, I'm worried about 30 to 40 years. (laughs) Similar. It's like, don't worry. You make good wine. It's going to work. It just takes eight or nine years. I'm Mm -hmm. like, wow, that's another five years or three years, Mm -hmm. you know, can I wait that long?
0: But you also said you're having fun and you don't have major regrets. shall we say, (laughs) um, so, so, you know, and, and, uh, and again, I think for something like this, um, especially where you are, you know, it's it's better to have gone in and and give it a go than it is to. If you had walked away, if you hadn't have done this, yeah, it would have just sat in the back of your head and eaten away at you for forever. So this way, even if I mean, even if everything, everything I'm imagining, I'm projecting here a little bit, but even if I'm imagining would crash say tomorrow, you wouldn't have regretted having done this. I would
1: no, think. and I'd be the most popular guy living under the bridge. Because I'd have three thousand cases of wine with me, (laughs) right? I'd be a very popular bum. Make a lot of friends. (laughs) Make a lot of friends.
0: (laughs) I like it. Okay, so those are kind of the different kind of ones. I want to talk about a couple other things. A couple things I saw. They're they're like more I go newer terms. There's the uh, urban winery, which Mm. is. Uh, basically, they they kind of have a that downtown tasting room, or or they kind of find some kind of cool urban hip spot, and they may make the wine there, or they may make it elsewhere, or whatever. But it's it's really more about the um, tasting experience in the tasting room and and kind of being accessible, as opposed to, for example, you know, if I want to come here, you know, you you, and I, which I love the experience driving out in the country and driving by the wineries and everything else, but there is something to be said for that convenience of down the street from my hotel there's this huge tasting room kind of a thing right well
1: let me hit you with the uh the winery owner viewpoint on that i mean i agree with everything you said but what occurs to me is wow they don't have the cost of land to deal with no property tax Yes. You know, they've, they've cut out a lot of the cost of goods because they're they're renting a small, usually when you say urban, you're thinking it's a roll-up building, which is very inexpensive by the foot. Yeah, and I've and, seen many of those. <laughs> exactly, and they're great. And uh, they've got all these hip people coming because it's the new cool thing, which mm-hmm. is awesome. And they're not paying for the, the land. They're buying grapes, true. But, so they're
0: inadvertently kind of paying, but it's not those direct hard costs. Like
1: Right, yeah. and I mean, we could get into a whole... One of the better conversations I've had with people is Is it better to buy grapes or grow grapes? Mm Because I could debate that with you all day from either direction you want. Mm -hmm. Um, My personal feeling is buying grapes is better. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, it would be buying grapes. And one of the things they avoid is grape growing is farming, and farming has bad years. And if you grow your own grapes and you grow, you know, you have 12 acres or 10 acres, and so you've got 40 tons of grapes, and it's a really bad year, and they're just not up to quality. You're just going to make average wine. Whereas I buy grapes. I'm Mm -hmm. going to say, eh, no, those grapes don't meet our quality standards for our contract. I'm going to source my grapes someplace else. Yeah so I, I think it's better to actually buy grapes and they're in a position now in their little urban winery where their costs are down and they may be sharing sharing equipment with the other winery next door or something like that mm-hmm. they're buying grapes and if they don't want to make as much wine this year it's okay because they don't have well, the fields the, i
0: say yeah and then you're buying what you need rather mm-hmm. than you know I'm growing 10 acres or whatever I'm making up a number and that's how much wine I've got to make right, right. It, or, or find some place else to sell it as opposed to hey, I need enough for X number of cases. I want to find a good one and go from there. So, yeah, no, I can see you know definitely um, advantages in why that can kind of work. Yep. You can cut out a lot of costs. Um, but, I, I mean, like anything else, it's got its own set of risks. And if you're not the cool, hip, fun place, right, then uh, you end up with 3,000 cases of wine and living under a bridge. <laughs> <So. laughs>
1: yeah, that's true.
0: Okay. Um, and then this was just kind of um, – uh, i i found this very interesting a, a fun fact for myself <laughs> anyway uh because looking so there's the, the what's called a vineyard winery which i'm assuming this would be which is kind of the much more traditional type where uh, you grow harvest and make the wine all on the same place right right and so that the fun fact out of that that i found is that is if somebody says it's an estate wine ah that is at least from what i understand you can potentially correct me that is what an estate wine is and i'd never really fully understood the term
1: <laughs> okay so uh estate is a great term so people look at wine labels and they have all kinds of words all over i mean you and i said earlier that we have to get a certificate of label approval from the government and that is to ensure that the label doesn't mislead the consumer about what's in the bottle or the quality or anything like that and you would think that there'd be regulations on a lot of the words like reserve or uh, proprietors or something like that. In truth, uh, there's very little. But estate, that's the one word that is actually fully regulated by the government. There's a very strict set of what that means. Mm -hmm. So an estate wine must be made with grapes that are grown on property that you own or that you have a long-term lease for. Okay. What they really want is that, the people who are making the wine get to make all the decisions about how those grapes are grown. Mm -hmm. Then those grapes must be processed in a winery building that you own or have a long-term lease and control. Again, you need to be able to be responsible for all the the things that are done. Yeah. You must bottle that wine on that property. You must sell the wine. Well you can sell the wine anywhere, but you have to grow the grapes, make the wine, store the wine, bottle the wine all on property that you own. It all has to be within the same AVA, so you can't be gallo and have a little facility in Napa and call all of your wine Napa. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, they're pretty careful about that. But estate is a the one term that says, if it says estate on the label, you can be fairly confident that that wine has never left the, the wine grower's hands. The vineyard manager, the winemaker, probably the same guy, has never left that, and they're selling you wine that they did completely on their own property their own way
0: yeah well and especially now knowing what i know out out of this conversation um and i and it makes sense you can usually expect to pay a little bit more for that but from what i've heard anyway um but maybe not (laughs) uh, but from what i've but i think it it, there's there's a reason behind that and there's something to kind of be said in that because again i kind of heard it and it seemed like it kind of had some prestige to it but now that i know more about it i'm like I'm, I'm much more intrigued. I'm going to pay a lot more
1: attention to when I
0: see that, I think.
1: So should it cost more? Eh, not really. I can't think of a reason. There's not a financial reason it should cost more. Uh, in fact, I could probably argue it should cost a little less because you have less uh, cost into growing the grapes and everything else because you didn't buy the grapes. Yeah. So pretty much it's a little cheaper to do it that way. But there is prestige and it's marketing. Yeah. You know, it makes it something special. When you see reserve on the label, it has no real meaning. Um, our reserves mean that it's been in barrel an extra year and it's been in bottle a full year before you get it. So it was held back a full year and a half longer to make sure it's better wine. And we started with the better lots to do it. Mm -hmm. So our reserves should always be better than the base wine that they came from. That's not necessarily true. There's no law that says it has to be that way. Yeah. Estate, the law says it's got to be from your property. Does it make it better? It makes it better because if the people put a state on it, they probably cared more about it. They were probably very careful with it, but it doesn't guarantee it. Yeah.
0: Well, it makes it better if you like that wine because I think you can know that there's going to be some consistency in that wine, right? So that as you get. True. I mean, again, there's variance of weather and, and crop yield and all the other stuff, but as a whole, if it's the same people making it, you know, there should be some consistency in, in, in you liking that wine.
1: Yes, that's true. It's coming from the same grapes, probably the same procedures, same way it's made every year. It should same be very maker. consistent. Yeah, same Yeah, same philosophies. Right. If you like the estate cab last year, you're probably going to like the estate cab this year. Yeah. It's a good point. Okay. I hadn't thought of that.
0: Yeah. No, that just makes sense. Anyway, it's so just going through. So that was just kind of fun. So um, I think that's kind of all I kind of had. Is there anything you want to kind of add
1: or throw out there to the world? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We could talk for hours. I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the Rhone varietals. Um, I, I think what I would love to throw out to the world is the wine is such a huge, big, wonderful world. Try everything. Mm. We I mentioned to you before we started recording that I get people coming in. They say that um, do you have a do you have a Cabernet? I only like Cabernet. There are over four thousand wine grapes in this world. Now it's true in California we only use like maybe thirty of them. But God, try everything. It, even if you think, oh, I hate franc," I've never found what I like. They're all different. The winemakers are different. The climate's different. The soils are different. Try everything. If, you, if you're if you wine tasting, you, you've, you've paid some money to taste some wine and try everything that they'll let you try. If you don't like it, pour it out immediately. If you try it, you go, eh, it's okay. Pour it out. If you try it, you go, wow, this is fantastic. Ask for more. Yeah. You know, but try it all because you're going to find something. There's those weird grapes, Cabernet Pfeffer. There's like three people that make it in this whole California. I can't even tell you what it tastes like. Try it. It might be the best thing in the world.
0: Yeah. For you, right? And I've never yeah. even heard of that one. But yeah, I and I've, I have found that. And, and I agree. There's some that I'm like, I'll give it a go. And I'm like, not for me. But there's been some that I've tried. And I'm like, that is like really good. Yeah. This is fun. It's not
1: intimidating. It should be fun. Not yeah. an experimental.
0: And you like what you like and you drink what you like. And, and yep. it, it is literally that simple. And I think if you go any, anywhere above that, you're overcomplicating it to a degree. Unless you're the winemaker. Although I think to some degree that's got to be your philosophy, I, right? I think
1: we're less complicated than most people because <laughs> we know that it's all, it's not smoke and mirrors. But it's not, it's not serious. This is fun. I, so my sister loves rosé. Mm-hmm. And um, she drinks uh, blush rosé. I don't know if it's Gallo or, no, it's Francia. You know, it comes in a box. I've got this great picture with like 30 empty Francia boxes in her garage. It's just <laughs> hilarious. Um, but so I started making wine and I make a fairly decent rosé. So I thought this is great. I can, I can supply her habit. Mm-hmm. So I took her a case of rosé for Thanksgiving four or five years ago. Didn't like it. Ah. And she was so hurt. She was like, oh, I can't tell him I don't like the wine. And I thought it was hilarious. I went out and I bought her a case of Francia rosé. <laughs> if you like it, drink it. Yeah, It does not matter.
0: Drink up. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's that's it. Well, perfect. Uh, and that's our I say, that's our, our kind of overarching theme here is drink what you like. So and that's that's perfect. the bottom line. So okay, great. Well, um, where can we learn a little bit more? Do you guys have a website or do you guys ship? If somebody's sitting there saying I can't I can't get out here to Gilroy, but I want to know a little bit more.
1: Of course. So you can find us, uh, we do have a website, levidonsonwines.com. I could spell it for you, but that's really long. And uh, you can just Google "Levi" and it'll probably come up. Okay. We also have Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we do a lot of art projects and things. So we have a Pinterest page, uh, Twitter account. We're pretty pretty much hip with the young kids. Or with... <laughs> However God, you say I that. sound like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, uh, we're pretty easy to find on social media and the website. And we're here in the north side of Gilroy at 3200 Dryden Avenue, We have a beautiful little tasting room that's open five days a week. We would love to have anybody come down, and uh, you'll find me in the tasting room, and we'll hang out and drink some wine.
0: Outstanding. And uh, for the Unsophisticated Palette, if you want to send us a message, make uh, topic suggestions, anything else, we're at uh, www.theunsophisticatedpalette.com. Please, of course, rate us, uh, tell your friends, so we can get more of the Unsophisticated Palette out into the world. Uh, And until next time, drink responsibly. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers.